You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen, and I'm in the virtual studio once again with Professor David McDonald from Global Development Studies here at Queen's University. Hello, David. Hi, Dinah. So happy new year. Welcome back to CFRC. Very exciting times for you. For folks that are uh, listening in, uh, if you were listening in the late fall, you would have recently heard uh, my discussion with David related to his book, uh, co-edited book, Public Water and COVID-19, Dark Clouds and Silver Linings, released last fall. Now there is a new follow-up book to that collection entitled... Public Banks and COVID-19, Combating the Pandemic with Public Finance. So David, before jumping into discussion about this brave new collection, can you tell our listeners or remind our listeners a little bit about yourself and your research in global development studies here at Queen's? Yeah, so I'm a professor in global development studies, and um, I have been working for the past 20 years running a project called the Municipal Services Project which has been looking at a variety of debates about public versus private service delivery. And uh, the last 10 years, our focus has been primarily on um, looking for and assessing uh, what constitutes a good public service. So we look at a wide range of services, uh, water, electricity, healthcare, transportation, et cetera. Uh, banks are one of the uh, most recent things that I've <clears throat> been looking into, but as we'll see, my colleagues uh, have, been, have been working on public banks longer. But our, you know, my, my primary focus of my research has been um, on basically saying, how do we know a, a public service is good? How do we evaluate these things? What, if anything, is reproducible about them in other parts of the world or indeed uh, in in different um, public service uh, sectors? Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. Now, moving over to your new collection, which again, you co-edited with uh, Thomas Merois and Diana Barrowclaw. The uh, book is titled Public Banks and COVID-19, Combating the Pandemic with Public Finance. David, can we start with the basics here, uh, right down to the basics, actually? What are public banks and what is their significance? Yeah, well, great, great question. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, when I first started working on this topic, uh, I was asking the same questions to myself. Okay. And uh, it's my my colleague, Tom Marois, who's, who's actually Canadian, but he's uh, based at the University of London in the UK. And uh, he's, in fact, he was here for a little while at Queen's uh, teaching um, uh, at an adjunct level before he uh, moved to the UK. Um, and he's been working on this for well over a decade. Um, so he's, he's the real sort of public bank expert. Um, but I think you know, one of the reasons we ask ourselves this question is that we don't really have public banks. Mm-hmm. They're not part of what we think of in our day-to-day life. So you know, we've got the big five, Scotia and TD, et cetera. Um, and some of us, uh, myself included, initially may have thought, well, maybe the, you know, the small banking co-ops are 
public banks, but no, those are also private banks. They're just owned by their members. Um, so what, what differentiates a public bank is effectively some form of state ownership and uh, state control. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be 100% state ownership. It can be you know, 51% state ownership. Um, it can be municipal governments. It can be uh, provincial governments. It can be national governments. So uh, they really do vary. Some of them are fairly small. Some of them are, are some of the biggest banks in the world, particularly the, the Chinese uh, public banks. Um, and in some countries, they constitute uh, a huge part of the banking sector. So in Germany, for example, it's around 30% of the banking sector is controlled by public banks. Okay. And so, you know, if you asked a German what a public bank is, you know, they wouldn't have any problem telling you. They, you know, they understand the, these differences. Um, now, you know, I correct myself slightly in that we, we do have a few public banks in Canada, uh, for example, the Export Development Corporation, the EDC, um, at, at a federal level, uh, and then the BDC, the Business Development Corporation, these, as the names imply, are very much uh, geared towards the private sector. Uh, and they've, they're fairly niche in that their EDC, for example, is about promoting exports. Um, and they're relatively small banks uh, in the grand scheme of things. The other one that's been started uh, fairly recently is the Canada Infrastructure Bank, um, which is is more typical kind of um, multi-purpose public bank. But um, you know, maybe I'll save my comments on that till we talk about some of the problems with public banks, because uh, this Canada Infrastructure Bank is is not what we would classify. A, as a truly public bank in that its primary mandate is actually to privatize uh, <laughs> public, public services. So okay. um, there's, you know, uh, defining something as public and, and being publicly owned and controlled is one thing. Defining the character of these public banks is another thing. Okay. Thank you so much. So now before moving for even further into the work of the public banks and uh, what's happening, in what ways, David, has the pandemic exasperated financial challenges uh, for households, uh, small to medium enterprises, and even whole communities? And what are some of the hotspots that the pandemic has revealed, uh, uh, for example, businesses that can't pay their rent? Can we talk a little bit more about what's happening for folks and their reliance on banks, public or private. Sure. And you know, full disclosure here, as a tenured full-time uh, faculty member at Queen's, I am uh, one of the lucky people uh, in terms of a stable uh, income um, without you know, a serious threat of job loss, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I'm able to continue my work. Um, you know, the production of these two books is, is an example of that. I also have, you know, my two kids are off at university age, so I'm not... Um, you know, doing homeschooling, et cetera. So I, I've I've been a very very privileged position here. Um, Thank you for that. But <laughs> having said that, there's obviously a lot of people, um, in, including you know people like yourself who are you know scrambling to put work together um, in the Canadian context, uh, who you know for all kinds of reasons not able to pay their rent, not able to pay their utilities. Uh, you know they've lost part or all of their income. Um, and so there have been all kinds of uh, personal and uh, small business uh, challenges in the Canadian context. And 
um, you know, we can talk about how the government has responded to these things, which has been largely direct government intervention federally and provincially and to some extent uh, municipally, which, which differs in some, to some extent from what public banks do. Um, but you know, I, I taught a course last semester on COVID-19 in the Global South. And uh, one of the things we talked a lot about was you know, what's going on in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and uh, not to in, in any way diminish the economic challenges of, of Canadians. Um, but uh, you know, when you start to look at the economic fallout of COVID-19 in uh, low-income countries, and particularly in low-income areas of low-income countries, um, the, the situation is, is exponentially worse. Uh, informal traders who live you know, uh, day by day in terms of you know, cash flow, um, food shortages, people being kicked out of their homes, rise in domestic violence as a result of these things. I mean, again, all of these things are taking place throughout the world. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, the economic challenges in, uh, in some parts of the world are, are even that much worse and you, you don't often have the government or in some cases, public bank capacity to provide the kinds of buffers um, that uh, many, not all, but many Canadians have at least uh, been able to use until now to sort of get through the worst of things. Okay, so with that in mind, let's dive in to talk about the roles that public banks are playing on the front lines of dealing with the economic and health crises uh, stemming uh, from financial collapse, but and supporting households and uh, as well as small businesses and even channeling resources towards essential health and public services in light of COVID-19. What's happening? Yeah, well, we have a in, in the introduction to the book, uh, we have a, a, a table, it's a cup just looking at it here now, it's a couple pages long, where we sort of break down all of the various functions that uh, public banks have done, uh, and some of the specific actions taken. So, um, for example, we've seen uh, increased lending um, from public banks uh, to assist with uh, paying rent, um, or we've seen uh, reduced and concessional interest rates. Uh, we've seen credit ceilings raised quickly and faster processing of loans. Um, we've seen grants being given out to you know NGOs and uh, and, and and households, uh, loan guarantees, um, debt relief. Um, Another thing that a lot of banks have been able to provide is sort of advisory services. So again, you know, your your average um, uh, government bureaucrat is is not necessarily couched in in the the nuances of finance, but public banks are. And so, if a household or a small business comes to them and says, "Oh my God, how am I going to you know what am I going to do for cash flow to get through the next uh, you know six months or whatever this thing's going to last?" Um, public banks have that kind of capacity, um, and uh, you know that's one of the limitations of what we've done in Canada. We've basically just you know pushed the money out the door. Um, there hasn't been the kinds of uh, advisory services and. Um, uh, more thoughtful targeting of, of who needs the money and what's the best way to get it out to people that we've seen with, uh, with, with some of the public banks. And, um, and in many countries, you've got public banks that are, are, you know, look like a Scotiabank. They have a retail outlet and people, you know, put their money in there and they go there for their sort of daily banking uh, services. Um, and, uh, and those kinds of, of retail banking, public retail banking outlets have, have also been a, a kind of a lifeline for people, you know, old pensioners and so on, who, um, uh, you know, got advice from, uh, from the 
person that they they bank with on a regular basis. So um, I think there's a you know a whole range of things that uh, that banks can do um, that uh, governments you know just aren't equipped necessarily to do. And and I'll just make one last point that that some banks are, are quite specialized. So for example, there's a, a bank in the Netherlands. We didn't actually cover this bank for this uh, particular project, although it's it's something we're going to be looking at later this year. Um, but this bank in the Netherlands is all they do is finance public water. And uh, they've been around for about 60 years. They're called the water bank in, in English. And uh, so they, you know, they know everything about water. So, um, you know, it actually kind of ties into the other book we did on, on public water and COVID-19 because a lot of public water operators found themselves in, in deep financial crisis because mm-hmm. uh, they, people weren't consuming water, particularly big industrial users. And so if you have a bank that specializes in the public water sector, they can actually step in and work with their partners in the, in the water sector to provide the kind of finance that they need. And these aren't the kinds of skills that, you know, your, your average bureaucrat uh, would have. So that's what I think what, what differentiates a public bank in a crisis like this from simply governments, you know, pushing money out the door to try and stem the, the, uh, the flood. Thank you so much. So I noticed in the description of the collection that the book identifies best practices in dealing with the current crisis. But I have to wonder how are best practices in public banks in dealing with the pandemic are assessed as best practices in and of themselves since the pandemic itself is still underway and the final outcomes are still quite speculative. How do we know they are best practices? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say there's a lot of moving parts here and a lot of, um, I don't know, very slippery parts, kind of like questions, kind of like trying to nail jello to a wall <laughs> in, in the sense that uh, there has been very, very little research of the type I was talking about earlier, sort of progressive but critically minded research on public banks. Most of the work on public banks has been done by the World Bank, which ironically is also a public bank, but uh, you know, basically dismissing public banks as inherently corrupt and nepotistic and inefficient, et cetera. Um, and so we're only starting to see good qualitative case study research on public banks. And so this book is frankly, you know, well, I'm thinking aloud here, but it, it's probably the largest single collection of qualitative case studies on, on public banks to date, come to think of it. Um, and uh, so you know, it's we're sort of finding our way as we go. Um, and at the same time, this was done during a pandemic. And, uh, you know, so we were really scrambling to try and, you know, put this thing together. So what we did was we basically sent the authors a list of, you know, what, what do you think it constitutes good practice? And then we also wanted them to look at some basic parameters around what we think a good practice is, is for any public services. So, you know, is it accountable? Is it transparent? Uh, is it a kind of sustainable practice? So these baseline normative criteria around what we think constitutes a good public service, how did the public banks stand up to that? And uh, uh, so as I think you, you're probably going to ask me about, uh, one of the things we did was you know, what, what constitutes uh, a good public service for public services in general and, and this, these kind of normative criteria around accountability and transparency and sustainability. And, uh, you know, not surprisingly, some of the banks did well on some 
and not very well on others. Uh, and uh, so what we really are trying to do is, is advance methodologically and conceptually discussions about public banks uh, through this research. Okay, thanks. So the collection's description also notes that the chapters therein also highlight changes needed to make banks more equitable, democratic, and sustainable in the future. So with that in mind, in what ways are some public banks not meeting these benchmarks? And what are some of the changes that could be made that emerge in your chapters? Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's do the democratic and accountability one. Um, and again, you know, I, I encourage your listeners to think of public banks like any other public utility, water, electricity, healthcare, because that's what they are. Uh, they're publicly owned, publicly controlled, publicly managed, and they need to be just as accountable and democratic as Kingston Utilities uh, or Kingston General Hospital. Um, and in a lot of places, they are not. And part of the problem here is that there's this kind of uh, mystification around finance uh, and one that's perpetuated by people in finance who tend to be overwhelmingly men <laughs> uh, and overwhelmingly men in positions of privilege and privileged backgrounds. So there's a kind of demographic uh, character to a lot of public banks, not all, but a lot, that, that make them sort of um, innately opaque. And this is something that uh, public banks are starting to grapple with. We, we're working very closely now with a lot of um, public banking associations and, and they're starting to do things like, you know, getting more women into uh, public banks and into positions of power, et cetera. So um, I would say that uh, the, you know, the, the public banking sector, um, not uniquely, but certainly uh, very strongly, uh, needs to have better representativity um, and, and needs to sort of account for itself. For the to the public, so it's it's been you know a lot of stuff behind closed doors, uh, not a lot of um, uh, transparency, etc. So um, again, some banks have done much better jobs. So for example, there's a bank in Costa Rica, Costa Popul um, uh, Banco Popular, which is owned half by the government and half by uh, workers' unions in the country. And there's a very different dynamic there with with the unions having uh, you know a, a seat at the table. Uh, and more than just a seat at the table, 50% of the decision making. So, um, you know, the kind of uh, institutional makeup of uh, who sits on the board, what kinds of mandates they have from the states, uh, from the, you know, the state that owns them, these can really have a big difference. And that's one of the things we talk about in, in the book is that these public mandates are really important in terms of how public banks perform. So, I made reference to the chapter in India uh, earlier, and um, you know the the author there is just basically saying that it you know there's not enough pressure on that public bank to do the right thing, and and you you know so you 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 have to go partly to the bank but partly to to government and say to them look at this is a public service you need to rethink about how these people operate what makes them more transparent what what makes them more accountable um, and and how can they you know benefit uh, the public at large so it's it's partly an institutional change it's it's partly a cultural change it's it's partly a demographic change um, and uh, you know again public banks are not unique in terms of their need to be more 
transparent and accountable to the people they serve. Uh, but I think that they are uh, going to be a particularly difficult nut to crack uh, as we try and not only keep public banks and expand their role, um, but you know, make them more democratic and accountable to the people they serve. Okay, thank you. So now you did mention uh, earlier in our conversation, uh, some of the uh, stones left on unturned, if you will, and I believe it was a bank in Norway, uh, the water bank, but are there other stones left unturned and what burning questions have been left unanswered that, that you and maybe some of your collaborator collaborators hope to pursue in perhaps a third volume? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we are turning the stones as we speak. Uh, in, in fact, this, these, both of these volumes were a result of having to uh, sort of stop turning the stones. We were in the process of uh, um, a, a project looking at eight different uh, countries in, in Europe and how public banks are financing public water when the travel restrictions hit. And so um, we said, well, uh, we can't do face-to-face -face interviews. Let's maybe look at how public water operators and public banks are separately dealing with COVID-19. So um, we did you know, what we could in a, in a virtual world. And, and indeed, I think travel restrictions are, are not gonna allow the field work we'd anticipated this year either. Uh, but we do wanna get back to um, those more specific studies of public banks financing public water operators. Um, but I'm also, well, we are also very interested in uh, the energy transition, um, how public mm -hmm. banks can be used and have been used um, to finance the transition to, to green energy and how that compares to private finance. Um, and some of your readers I'm sure are familiar with you know, the growth in things like green bonds and green finance, the vast majority of which are being promoted by for-profit private banks, and the vast majority of which, frankly, are not going to really do much in terms of advancing green energy, except line the pockets of the financiers with you know, speculative investments. So um, how do we use public banks and public finance to advance a renewable energy uh, agenda is, is another big topic that we, uh, that we want to look at in the near future. Okay, thank you. Thank you again. So now, where can interested readers find or get access to the book? I understand yeah. that there's an ebook, but also potentially hard copies too. Yeah, so um, we're we're going to be putting out uh, hard copies. The one of the co-publishers is the uh, UNCTAD, the United Nations Commission on Trade and Development in Geneva, um, and. Uh, the plan is to have a, a follow-up conference at some point, um, and uh, we'll be having uh, hard copies of the book available as well. Um, but uh, e-copy, free e-copies of the book are available at our dedicated website, which is if you just Google publicbankscovid19.org, um, you'll find it. And uh, that's where you'll also find this uh, interactive website we have with profiles of about uh, 50 other public banks and how they've been um, uh, dealing with COVID-19, much smaller little uh, summaries of what, what they're doing. Uh, but we've got the 22 chapters from this book um, looking at detailed bank and regional um, case studies of, uh, of how public banks have responding, been responding to the crisis. Okay. So anything else to add before we close our spot today? Well, I guess the only thing I would say is, is uh, do a little reading on the Canada Infrastructure Bank. Um, this is the Liberal government's response. Uh, 
And it, uh, frankly, is exactly not the kind of public bank we want to have. Uh, essentially, what this Canada Infrastructure Bank is doing is trying to use public money to leverage private finance uh, to privatize our services, including water and healthcare and electricity. So um, if, uh, if you're interested in uh, maintaining public service in, in Canada, then we need to demand a, a real public bank and one that is interested in, in advancing and improving public services, not in privatizing them. So, um, you know, if uh, public banks seem like something only happening in another country, they are indeed happening here, uh, but they are not the kind of public banks we want to see. All right. Well, thank you, folks. That sounds like a great homework assignment for all of our listeners out there. And uh, please do follow the advice on accessing this free ebook and looking for the hard copies when they are released, too. Uh, incidentally, too, I did want to remark it, a, a very speedy turnaround. Uh, how was it possible that you were able to wrangle so many academics and activists at the same time to contribute chapters in such a short amount of time? to not only complete their discrete chapters, but then have them ready and edited for release so quickly. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure I would have done it had I known uh, exactly what it was all going to mean in the end, although I've done enough books that I should have known. But you know, the two books combined involved, I, I edited up just before Christmas, uh, 71 people working in 30 different countries. And um, yeah, it took a lot of, well, mo I mean, basically most people were keen to do it. And so this, you know, they love what they're doing and they were keen to get the material out. But, um, you know, it's that last mile, which is uh, usually the most difficult. And, um, and then some of the logistics of uh, copy editing and layout and so on. Uh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of getting it out by the skin of our teeth, but uh, I think in the end, um, we're very proud of the, uh, of the product. Um, despite a few uh, warts here and there. Well, congratulations to you and your collaborators. Folks, we have been chatting with Dr. David McDonald uh, about his co-edited collection, Public Banks and COVID-19, Combating the Pandemic with Public Finance. We really do appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us again here on CFRC, and we look forward to seeing you for that third edition. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Diana, for your great questions. Too. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Hey.